Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. An important discussion about Doug Ford's office. Is the Premier's office trying to discredit its critics? Plus, the rise of fascism and the rise of reporting on fascism. What does it mean as we remember the Holocaust today? And we talk about Dundas Street. Should it be renamed? Let's get to it. Who will Doug Ford come for next? Who will the Premier's office try to discredit next? Yesterday, Doug Ford was at Pearson Airport complaining about travelers coming into the country. This was the number one issue for Doug Ford. Meanwhile, the variant is here, raging. It has claimed lives. It is clearly in the community. And what are we talking about? We're talking about the airport. Fast forward 24 hours later, Doug Ford has gotten himself into a bit of a spat with one of the members of what I call the Greek chorus. The doctors who are often critical of the Ford government and its rollout of COVID measures, how it implements policies. And now it appears that the Ford government is attacking its critics in a new way that I just... we got to get into it, folks. A member of Ontario's science table, Dr. David Fisman, was under scrutiny after a Toronto Sun story pointed out that Fisman also has consulted for the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Dr. Fisman has been a guest on this program in the past. From Ford's office, just a few scant hours after the Sun story, quote, The news about Dr. Fisman is deeply concerning. Unfortunately, we learned about this matter through the media. Neither the Premier nor his Cabinet were aware of this potential conflict. The conflict being, apparently, that the doctor had advised the government about school opening and closing, and also had advised the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. In an email to Global News, when we reached out to the doctor this morning to ask if he would join us on this program, quote, this is from Dr. David Fisman, this is pretty transparently a hit piece, as I suspect you are aware. I'm not really interested in dignifying it or giving it oxygen. You can get my thoughts on Twitter. Happy to talk about an actual issue some time. And from Dr. Fisman's Twitter, where he has been quite active this morning, I choose this quote. Folks close to the Premier, on the vaccine tax force, in senior leadership roles in health, being busted for Caribbean junkets at the height of the pandemic, yes, there's lots lots to distract from. It can be me this week someone else next week. Dr. Fisman pointing out that there are many, many issues to pay attention to. And yet this, this is the thing that the Ford government is concentrating on. And this is set off an absolute firestorm on social media with doctors coming to the defense of Dr. Fisman, and then now this, this morning, on Twitter, from the Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland, quote, 
as we fight the COVID-19 pandemic, scientific guidance and analysis has been an essential weapon. I am grateful for the expertise and advice of Dr. Fisman and for the conversations he has had with me. Hashtag thank you, David Fisman, the deputy prime minister of this country, choosing sides. And so the Ford government, which has long been a hundred or 800 pound gorilla, bunch of yahoos, give your head a shake, has now said, well, I'm deeply, deeply concerned. Deeply, deeply concerned. Let's dig into this. What really is at issue here? Cat Ward is a global news reporter and is digging into the story about what really is any kind of potential conflict of interest here. And we're just trying to get her on the line. Cat Ward will be joining her, us in just a couple of moments. And what we're looking at here is, does the Ford government have a point? Did it really not know? That the doctor was consulting for the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario? Did it really not know that? What are the policies that guide the scientific health table? Was the doctor under some sort of requirement to disclose this? You heard what the doctor had to say about it. Transparently a hit piece is the reaction from the doctor. What does this say about the Ford government that it is willing to put out a statement this quickly about this story. Let's dig into it with Cat Ward. Cat is on the line. Uh, What have you found out, uh, Catherine, about uh, what the government required of the doctor? Well, simply put, Alan, um, what we know is that people are required to disclose any conflicts of interest that they've had. Now, we've heard reports that This process is updated every six months or so. So it is possible potentially that maybe this wasn't uh, confirmed, you know, on paperwork. But the reality is, is that, you know, I did a quick search of my inbox, Alan, this morning, and I easily found a relationship in, in terms of press releases and press conferences that the doctor had with the union. So it was well known in the community that he did have this relationship. Uh, and and what are we hearing from the Elementary Teachers Federation? I know you've been in contact with them this morning. Yes, I spoke with them, and I do have a meeting with the president this afternoon. But simply put, they did acknowledge that they hired him to provide a legal expert opinion on a court matter. Um, this is common that experts would be retained to do this. It is not uncommon that they would be paid for this kind of work. So we do know that, and they do acknowledge it. They did not tell us how much he was paid when we did ask that question. Um, but they said, you know, this was something that was before the courts. It was well documented. There's a there's a link online that you can see the opinion of the doctor, uh, which is the 29 page document that um, the newspaper article references. And I will just again read the uh, quote from the premier's office, as you point out how easy it was to find this information and how transparent it was that it was out there. The quote from Ford's office: "Unfortunately, we learned about this matter through the media. Neither the premier." nor his cabinet, were aware of this potential conflict. Can we just dig into conflict here and and what our understanding of conflict might be when you are hiring a doctor for some kind of medical or, or scientific advice? I think the concern here that perhaps is being targeted is that 
they don't want no one ever wants to appear to have been paid off for their position in a particular group. But one thing, you know, having watched his commentary, the doctor's commentary throughout, you know, the last many months, is that his opinion around issues that have been in the public with regards to school closures or school openings, and it has not changed. He has consistently said that this is something that needs to be done in a way that is safe. Um, Perhaps he has been critical of certain decisions that are made, but his opinion has remained the same. And so when it comes to a conflict and perhaps some people saying, well, you know, he was being critical, maybe he was paid to have this opinion. It's hard to reconcile that given just how consistent his opinion has been from what I can tell on the outside looking in. This seems to have really blown up in the premier's face, especially I just cannot... Uh, express enough how significant it is that the deputy prime minister has taken to Twitter and in a very public way sided with Dr. Fisman. That's right. She, she wrote this morning, you know, and I quote, I am grateful for the expertise and advice of um, David Fisman and for the conversations he has had with me. That is a very clear siding with him and his uh, reputation and the advice that he has given. And the one thing I want to point out too, Alan, is that the entire medical community has really come to his side on this in a very public way. Last night, as this was sort of unfolding and people were being made aware of the situation, there was a hashtag, you know, thank you, David Disman, trending number one on Twitter in Canada. And just doctors coming to his side saying, you know, he is the beacon of light we've looked to. They called him a truth teller. You know, lots of people that we have interviewed repeatedly in the media um, as experts on COVID-19 really, you know, really rallying for him in this moment. Kat Ward is a Global News reporter, and I know you're working on this story, and we'll have more on it tonight on Global News Television at 5.30 and 6, and, of course, throughout the course of the day here on Global News Radio. Kat, appreciate you being on. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. What's your takeaway from all of that? Yeah, when I read the statement about, you know, deeply concerning from Doug Ford, immediately, you know, what I was reminded of was, was his statement when it first blew up about his finance minister being in St. Bart's, and he was like, well, he's outraged about it, and then he had to kind of walk it back. Well, it turns out he knew. And you watch. This one will walk back, too. You know, is he deeply, deeply concerned? Quote, unquote, deeply concerning. That's what Ford's office had to say. I think they're going to have to walk that back. I certainly hope they do, but what the concern is here is who's next. Is it me? I mean, I don't elevate myself to doctor position, but I'm on here every single day talking about the issues and talking about how Doug Ford and his government have this repeated habit of trying to distract us by pointing at something else when we have a crisis in our midst. So I guess maybe if I shout too loudly or if too many people listen to me, maybe there'll be a story in the Toronto Sun about me. Maybe I'll be discredited. Maybe Doug Ford will be deeply concerned about me in a way to distract you. I'm asking you, do not be distracted. January 27th marks the International Day of Commemoration in memory of the victims of the Holocaust. It was January 27th, 1945. 
that Soviet troops liberated the biggest Nazi concentration camp, Auschwitz-Birkenau, in then-occupied Poland. Today, from the Vatican, Pope Francis warned that distorted ideologies could lead to a repeat of mass murder on a horrific scale. Remembering the Holocaust, he said, quote, also means to be aware that these things can happen again, starting with ideological proposals that claim to save a people and end up destroying a people and humanity. In Auschwitz, tweeting out a statement today, the concentration camp uh, sending out a statement that I will somewhat paraphrase as saying that the Holocaust did not begin with concentration camps and ovens and mass murder. It began with the denigration of people. Fascism is on the rise around the world, and not just fascism, but reporting about fascism. The word itself being used in the media so much more, so much more since the attack, especially on the U.S. Capitol. Daniel Pennington is a historian and Holocaust educator at the Newberger Holocaust Education Center in Toronto, and he writes in an opinion piece in the Globe and Mail that this development about the use of the word fascism and the reporting of fascism is as frustrating as it is vindicating. And Daniel Paniton joins me on the line. Welcome to the program. Can you explain why you feel it's frustrating? Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, so what's really frustrating about this is that uh, Let's say for the last four to five years, um, there have been commentators who have been raising what we'll say is the F word um, when we're talking about the various permutations that we're seeing around the world. However, um, anytime you use that word, because it has been misused in the past, people are often quick to almost in a knee-jerk reactionary way shut it down. Say, like, you're, you're, being, you're exaggerating, you're being ridiculous, and not actually taking into account what the people who are saying, no, this is textbook fascism, are saying. Uh, I will say that it's a slowly developing kind of consensus. It wasn't like overnight, suddenly all the scholars of the subject were saying like, yes, this is what is happening. But since, as I was saying, four to five years ago, scholars were starting to say it. Uh, it's been escalating to the point where even um, luminary scholars of the subject, like Robert Paxton, are all openly saying, yes, this is fascism. Uh, this kind of ties to what you mentioned um, in your lead-in, where you're just talking about how Auschwitz reminded us all that uh, the Holocaust did not start with gas chambers or ovens. And often the Holocaust is almost used as a retroactive metaphor. So, like, when we start talking about fascism, they'll say, yeah, but we're not at the gas chambers of Auschwitz. So, like, using that word is inappropriate. But as um, the Auschwitz Museum reminds us, that's it, kind of missing the point. It, it's a process. It starts early. And so it's vindicating to hear people actually start to, like, listen and start to use that word. But it's also frustrating because we've been saying it for half a decade. And, and still, even, you know, as I peruse the Internet and just sort of, you know, read my way through about a billion think pieces over the last couple of days thinking about this and thinking about uh, fascism and how we use that word, we are still kind of wrapped up in that. You know, it, is Trump a fascist? I, I must have read six or seven pieces about that. But is that really the point, whether it's textbook fascism, uh, as we understand it, as it uh, grew out of the Great Depression, first in Italy and then spread to the rest of Europe, and now then we know what happened after that. Uh, are we missing the point, Dan? Um, I think in some of the debates, people are missing the point in that they'll be basically looking for replications of classical fascism, particularly Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy, 
in Trump. And there are um, potentially like echoes that you could draw. But the point is that like, fascism in the 21st century is a different beast. It's evolved into something else where many of the kind of motivating gr- uh, points of grievances are still there. But it's responding to completely different uh, circumstances. Like we're not in the Great Depression right now which changes kind of how fascism is going to act. But it, um, if we kind of hold up these Great Depression examples as, say, the acid test of what, what fascism is, yes, I, I think we miss the point. Well, you know, I think we ask this, you know, every year, and, you know, it, it's a simple question, but I think a complicated answer, and that is why is it important to remember the Holocaust on this day? Absolutely. Um, so, uh the Holocaust is really uh, ground zero for our understandings of um, human rights internationally. So Michael Rothberg has this really uh, interesting concept. He's a historian. Uh, the concept is multidirectional memory that he coined to kind of address the developing hierarchy of suffering that was emerging between different atrocities in the past. And he kind of wanted to make the point that uh, we shouldn't be putting, say, let's say, uh, slavery or um, the Holocaust or other things that have happened in the past into a sort of competitive perspective. But we need to understand that a lot of memory culture, um, culture of human rights, things like that, really emerged from the Holocaust itself. And within that subject, we can see kind of the the crucible in which uh, modern human rights were born and then also... Uh, the development of memory culture, which continues to inform historical education today. That, that's that's really very interesting to, to think about that and, and to think about how that that is uh, part of the memory of the Holocaust and the remembering of the Holocaust is, has informed our understanding of uh, progressive liberal human rights. I, 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 I think what concerns me the most when I begin to think about the rise of fascism is, is that I really see, and I'm no historian, I don't even play one on television, but I, I, I'm really seeing this collapse and failure of the center, very similar to the way that the center collapsed uh, in the 30s, where you know the centrist governments were just shouted down from the left and the right, and then we saw this authoritarian style. People sort of turned to, well, I mean, the center isn't working, so we're going to move to either to the extreme left or the extreme right. Uh, do you see that parallel here? Um, yes, I do, to, uh, to a degree. Uh, it makes me always think about um, Carl Schmitt is a famous philosopher who was actually a Nazi himself. And he almost gloats in some of his work about how one of the things about democracy is that they're only going to continually be breaking off into side committees until jackboots are in the hall. Uh, and it's kind of a uh, observation I think does carry on through today, where we're seeing people were throwing up in the face of these fascist movements um, procedures and rules and norms and things like this, which were just shredded in front of people's eyes, and nothing really happened. So I think there is kind of a lesson there of stop guards being needed and failing in certain regards. When you look to the future, are you hopeful? I think so, yes. Um, both of the uh, regards to Holocaust education, um, although in, in my piece I talk about, uh, like, obviously it's a big threat for us losing the survivors, but there's really great work being done in the field to prepare to really t- uh, transition to how can we start directly teaching students uh, these really civic values that are still rooted in survivor experience, which will never be gone from the field. In addition to that, the fact that we're having these conversations um, in mass media, we're actively starting to talk about fascism and identify, oh, there might be kind of proto-movements within our own country. Give me hope. 
however, it's it's a cautious hope. We'll see uh, how it develops in the next couple of years if radicalization continues uh, to unroll. Uh, but yeah, we'll see. Dan Paniton, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the program today. Uh, and I look forward to a time when the uh, Holocaust Education Center is once again open to in-person visits and that you can continue to do uh, the important work you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Daniel Pennington is a historian and Holocaust educator at the Newberger Holocaust Education Center here in Toronto. All around the world, cities are grappling with street names, with monuments, with Markers to the past that are being re-examined and thought about in different ways. We have seen what's happened in the United States, especially in the South, as they have removed statues to Confederate generals. And we have seen what's happened in places like Bristol, for example, where a statue of Henry Dundas has recently been removed. This from the Edinburgh News, talking about who Henry Dundas was, and I'll quote this. Actually, this is actually from, pardon me, from the National Post, which was quoting the Edinburgh News by, uh, by way of attribution here. But Dundas, Henry Dundas, was a Scottish politician in the late 18th century. In 19, and pardon me, in 1794, for those of you keeping score in the history column, in 1794, he was appointed the first Secretary of State of War, uh, he came to be known as the quote-unquote great tyrant, particularly for delaying the abolition of slavery in the British Empire by 15 years. And that is why there is such a push to either remove his statues or rename streets that have been named in his honor. The slave trade in the empire ended in 1807, but if it were not for Dundas's obstruction, it could have ended in 1792. A year earlier, Dundas became the last person to be impeached in the United Kingdom for mishandling public funds. He was acquitted, but never returned to public office. By delaying the abolition of slavery, Dundas caused 630,000 people to wait more than a decade for their relative freedom. That is one take on the history of Henry Dundas, but there are more than one takes on that, and history is always interpreted through different lenses. Jennifer Dundas is a member of the Henry Dundas Committee for Public Education on Historic Scotland. She is a Crown Attorney and former CBC journalist and joins me on the line. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Alan. So I just read out one history of Henry Dundas. I, I suspect you might have a different take on his history. Honestly, Alan, uh, that list of facts you just read off, I could take apart every single one of them. Uh, let's start with the great tyrant, and he was known as being the great tyrant. That had nothing to do with the abolition of slavery. It was because he controlled patronage, basically, in the um, British government, and yeah, he was the person you had to go through. And uh, and there were many reasons why he had a firm grip on uh, on that and other things. He was the most senior minister for Scotland, and he basically controlled what happened in Scotland. And in particular, he was harsh with um, seditionists. And it, that term came out of the seditionists who felt oppressed by their move to, for enfranchisement of every man, which uh, 
uh, was a revolutionary thought that Dundas and the government of the day opposed. It had nothing to do with abolition. Uh, the abolition of slavery is really the central issue, and the, the central issue when it comes to the fact that well, we're looking at the possibility of renaming Dundas Street or monuments or, or squares, for that matter, and the city of Toronto right now is looking at that possibility. They're, um, they're looking at it. I'm just wondering, uh, what's your take on that, on that specific issue uh, on the abolition, the delaying of the abolition of slavery within the British Empire? Uh one of the essential, well, the central claim of, of Dundas's critics is that he caused the delay, and that as a result, 630,000 Africans were taken into slavery. Uh, the central flaw in that is that he didn't cause it. I mean, if you're going to talk about causation, you have to show how those people would not have been taken into slavery if Dundas hadn't acted as he did. What Dundas proposed was a, a period of seven and a half years for ending the slave trade. And in that time, he proposed a measure that, first of all, would cut off 45% of the slave trade within a year. And then the rest of it would be shut down by various other measures. His proposal did not go forward to the House of Lords. It the abolitionists took apart his proposal. They moved up the deadline. They removed important elements of his 12-point plan, such as asking the king to negotiate treaties with other slave-trading countries so that they would all act together, so that when Britain exited the trade, other countries didn't rush in to fill the void. So he had a comprehensive plan, but the abolitionists, took it apart, and it was the abolitionist plan that the House of Lords rejected. It wasn't Henry Dundas's plan. That's an essential fact that gets missed in this debate. Henry Dundas, every single time he spoke about slavery or the slave trade, he denounced it as being contrary to justice and humanity. You will not find a single statement that he made privately or publicly that hinted that he was a supporter of either one of those things. It's simply not true. I'm speaking with uh, Jennifer Dundas about the legacy of Henry Dundas as we grapple with whether or not we should rename Dundas Street, which of course is a major thoroughfare and a major uh, part of uh, Ontario. And I mentioned your name, your last name, Dundas. Can you trace your lineage back to Henry Dundas? Not directly, no. Uh, it's a large clan. And uh, so um, my branch of the family is not a direct descendant of his uh, of his line. Um, and I think you would probably have to go back about 300 years to find a common relative. So this is not uh, a personal defense of one of my personal ancestors. I, I took an interest in this because it's my family name. And I cared when I heard about the allegations against him after the murder of George Floyd. And I was so horrified. Like everybody else, you know, I wept with the rest of the world around the murder of George Floyd. And um, and I just, I, I was astonished and shocked to learn that I, there was someone in our clan who, who may have had a hand 
in the oppression of Africans and in promoting um, the slave trade. And then you've decided that you, once you did the research, you, you didn't bear out what you were hearing elsewhere in the media. That's true. That's exactly right. Um, it was it was a, basically a, a kind of an existential crisis for my family, and we had long discussions about how do we respond to this. And so my first thing was, well, let's understand it first. And so I started reading the articles and looking into this, and it didn't take too long before you start to see that there's a very different picture that arises about Henry Dundas from the evidence. And that's what I focus on. As as a Crown prosecutor, uh, when I heard people accusing Henry Dundas of genocide and war crimes and this sort of thing, I thought, wow, but, but where's the evidence? And when I looked for that evidence, I couldn't find it. What I found was one historian after another saying that, Henry Dundas was known privately to oppose abolition. Well, I kept looking for the source of that, a letter, a speech, something, and I found nothing. And in fact, what I found was a lot of evidence that suggested the opposite. So, for example, in southern Ontario, the first lieutenant governor, uh, John Graves Simcoe, was appointed, was commissioned by Henry Dundas. And one of the first acts of George of, of Simcoe was to bring in legislation for abolition. And at a time when he was taking his marching orders from Henry Dundas, um, I looked at what was happening in Nova Scotia, where Henry Dundas told the governor there, you must give the black loyalists the land that we promised them. And you must make up for the delay by giving them extra value to compensate for the fact that you've refused to do this. There were many things I found that historians have overlooked or didn't know about, right. and it changed my view. What would you ask of uh, City Council, Toronto City Council, as they, they look into this, as they move forward with the possibility of renaming or changing the name or, or perhaps putting up a plaque, or what would you advise? This is a hugely important endeavor, in my view. Uh, addressing racism is critical. And, uh, you know, I've been anti-racist and a feminist all of my life. And I support addressing the wrongs of the past um, in our public spaces. The first thing is to get the facts right and to have um, a really genuine struggle with the differences of opinion over those facts. So that, first of all, we start from the same place of a common understanding about what the evidence shows and not pe- what people suspected or not what was said publicly, um, but base it on the evidence and then make the decisions. Jennifer Dundas is a Crown attorney, a former CBC journalist and a member of the Henry Dundas Committee for Public Education on Historic Scotland, which rolls right off the tongue, Jennifer. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you. Uh, very, wasn't that interesting? Just uh, fascinating, different way to, to look at it and to say, yes, we absolutely you know, must look at uh, the commemorations that we have the statues, the naming conventions, and we must examine them, but we must examine them correctly. We must actually look at what the evidence says. And so I think perhaps we need to do that, especially in the case of Henry Dundas. Interesting conversation there.
That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.